You get locked in a closet. You find out she wants to devour you. Tale as old as time. Welcome to Replaying Favorites. It's the podcast where two friends show each other spooky Halloween movies for October. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. And this week we are watching something that's not technically a movie and not super spooky. It's going to be Over the Garden Wall, which is a cartoon miniseries from 2014. Brie, what, if anything, do you know about this? Literally nothing, but I'm excited by the idea that you've just implied that it's not actually that scary because, as we've learned, I'm a big fraidy cat. But so are you. Which is how you could tell that this isn't going to be terrifying. This is a very whimsical series of cartoons from Patrick McHale, who you probably know from Adventure Time or Mayhaps Gravity Falls, maybe a little Steven Universe... I've been shaking my head throughout that entire description. Well, maybe you'll be more excited by a cast that includes an Elijah Wood, a John Cleese, got a little Tim Curry in there. Okay. I want to be clear, I'm not anti-cartoon. I just was shaking my head because you were implying that I must have seen these things and I was trying to indicate to you that I had not. Have you heard of them? Some of them. Okay. Well, this is in line with that work in terms of its overall whimsical, sometimes very random humor. They are short. They are weird. They are centered around Halloween as a theme. I hope you'll enjoy it. And if you don't, you can tell me about it after the break. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Can't wait to find out. Everyone, get ready for the drum beats. Very spooky. We're back from the break, and we watched the 2014 miniseries for the Cartoon Network, Over the Garden Wall, created by Patrick McHale, with writing and story contributions by Tom Herpich, Katie Krentz, Amalia Lavari, and others. Voices by Elijah Wood, Colin Dean, Melanie Linsky, Samuel Ramey, Christopher Lloyd, John Cleese, Shirley Jones, Tim Curry, B.B. Newirth, Shannon Sossman, Chris Isaac, and others. The show won two Emmys in 2015, one for Outstanding Animated Program and one for Nick Cross for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation. But none of that matters if Brie didn't like it. I mean, it matters, but it (laughs) matters more to me what Brie thinks. Brie, how did you feel about Over the Garden Wall? I liked it. There was a lot to like here. There was some really spectacular writing that was like, totally for me, and some genuinely scary sequences, and I thought I had a lot of heart. I think I probably could have done with eight episodes. I thought there were kind of a couple that dragged a little bit in the middle, but the first three were really great. The last two were also really great. I feel like it really pulled the story together. I loved it. The kid who plays Greg is amazing. Yeah, this is my third movie with, like, an irascible scamp as a lead. Indeed. But they've been three A-plus irascible scamps, so I stand by it. I didn't do a plot outline at the beginning because as an episodic series, I feel like we're going to do sort of an episode-by-episode, like, mini-recap. So I agree with you that there are a couple episodes that very clearly don't do any plot forwarding. And that's even clearer when you know what the overarching plot is, which you definitely didn't going in. Like, I rewatched this movie or this series 
every year for Halloween. Mm. It is one of my favorites. And so with a clear sense of what the full arc is, there are moments where I'm like, oh, right, we're just going to hang in a holding pattern here. We'll get to all that. Yeah. But there are like broad strokes that are really interesting. What jumped out at you overall? I feel like the voice acting was just incredibly strong and the writing was very, very funny. The writing had a real vibe of like the old weird internet. It made me really nostalgic for like old cheeseburger memes and just like the randomness that like is such a part of my personality. So like I really connected with the sense of humor that was involved, and that got me through even some of the patches that I thought were a little more uneven. What makes you watch this every year? I think that's a lot of it. There is the sense of humor of it being kind of strange and thrown out of space. So much of what makes me laugh every time are the lines that wouldn't make sense in just about any context, but are thrown in for fun anyway. Uh Like there's a moment when Greg says, we're here to burgle your turts, which is (laughs) one of the funniest turns of phrase in the world. (laughs) So you haven't watched any of Patrick McHale's other work. I kind of would recommend that you check some of that out if this worked for you, because this is very much what he does. It's like weird, peppy, funny, brightly colored characters doing odd things. I had very limited access to the sort of like adult swim stuff, but this feels like a very friendly adult swim vibe is the best that I can kind of like match it with. Yeah, and I think that that friendliness really carries over even in the spookier parts, because there are some parts that are threatening or eerie, but you're not worried that anyone's in real danger, even in the quote-unquote dangerous situations, which for a weenie like me who can't do scary movies, like, this is a great Halloween option. (laughs) You've got pumpkins covered, and there's trick-or-treating, and a manageable level of threat. Yeah, there'll be no gore. No one will die. It's spoopy, as I believe the internet would say. (laughs) So let's start in with episode one, The Old Grist Mill, which establishes sort of the driving force of this plot. There are two half-brothers in a forest, Greg and Wirt. They are wandering, they are lost, and they are about to be chased by the beast as introduced by the woodsman, played to wonderful effect by Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd has sounded like that old man since, like, the (laughs) 1970s, and I don't understand. I like that he's finally, like, arrived to the body, I assume, that his voice has anticipated for his entire career. There are a lot of actors in this that I didn't know were in this, but Christopher Lloyd, you know immediately. Yeah, I picked John Cleese and Christopher Lloyd straight away. I didn't pick out Shannon Sossaman, so I'm excited to learn who she played. <laughs> we'll get there. I think the first episode does a really great job of establishing the tone that we're going to be just scary enough. The dog monster is wild. It's very fun. It was kind of scary. Like, the animation had been regular enough to that moment where when it was suddenly, like, brightly colored and deranged looking, it got a little bit of a spark out of me. The Lorna Auntie Whispers, like, Lorna's persona, I found, like, actually kind of scary. But the dog is just enough that you get a sense of threat, but you're still getting to know these kids, so you're not really ready to see them at that level of peril. And I think it's really good pacing for the story. It's like, 
it's sort of like a starting a mixtape to sort of deal with Wart's thing later. Yeah, I was about to say, good tie-in. The other thing that keeps the level of danger manageable is the fact that Greg reacts as though nothing is wrong. (laughs) I knew that I was going to love Greg the moment that his very first like fully audible line was, and the very worst name for this frog is. (laughs) 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 And I was like, oh, me and Greg are on a level together. Like I tried to get my partner to get two cats together and name them liver and onions. And this was rejected. (laughs) And so I just felt an immediate sense of kinship with Greg that continued throughout the program. I am always impressed with the writing for Greg specifically, because it must be very difficult to come up with that level of sheer off the wall randomness. He just has the best non sequitur observations for every moment of this film. And you're right, Colin Dean, who plays him, is so beautifully buoyant and upbeat, and you can hear him smiling in every line delivery. Yeah, so much of the stuff was so disconnected and dreamlike and weird. So was this like a Kantaka and Taro situation where like Colin or maybe some other kids got to like inform where the story went? I would say judging by Patrick McHale's other work, that's probably not the case. I think he actually just has a very odd, random mind and sense of humor. I would imagine that most of this was scripted. It's just that he scripts things very well, but very strangely. It's his own unique perspective. I was really into it. I have to say, like, there's like a stilted way to do randomness. And then there's like actual, like authentically weird people. And I'm much more gravitated towards that. (laughs) Yeah. And it is interesting to watch this first episode in particular, knowing how it all ends, because so much is unexplained. And I think it's interesting how a lot of this is very much set up as a misdirect in terms of making you assume maybe we are in a different time period or that, I mean, and there are fantasy elements and this is a fantasful situation, but the reveal comes much later and we'll get there that not everything is as it seems at first glance. And I love that this first episode really builds a world that leads you in a different direction than the story ends up going in some ways. And I also like that it trusts the audience enough to not explain things and to let you dive right in. Even something as simple as Greg wearing an upside down teapot on his head. It's never explained until I think the last episode. And at first I had some questions about it, but the show told me like, you just got to let that go and go on the ride. You know, we've watched some movies where there's like the two by four to the head of we need you to understand what's going on here. And this was the opposite of that. And I was wondering if they were going to stick the landing. And I feel like they did. You know, it's funny that you bring up the teapot because it didn't dawn on me until you started talking that I've seen this so many times that I also don't question the teapot at all. And I was like, oh, yeah, that must be really weird when you first turn this on. And you're like, what the fuck is up with that kid? Well, especially because I thought we were in like a David the Gnome situation. We're like, (laughs) (laughs) based on Elijah Wood's character. Speaking of which, I kind of wonder if you might not like this because... If this were a live action, I could see you playing Wirt. Is that how you say his name, Wirt? Yeah, W-I-R-T. Another thing that is never explained is that I assume Wirt is short for something, but I can't imagine what. Also, I thought it was Wirt for so long. Anyway, both Elijah Wood's performance and a lot of the mannerisms that they give to him, I could see you playing I mean, Elijah Wood and I do both have, let's say, a difficult laugh. So <laughs> I think that there is like 
I would like you to be kinder to both yourself and Elijah Wood. I relate to Elijah Wood, though, because he's the first time that I've heard a person emit the kind of laugh that I have. Like, (laughs) if he gets caught off guard in an interview, it goes, like, a couple octaves up. And... (laughs) I cause the same difficulty to sound editors, or would if we had sound editors on this podcast. (laughs) As though the two of us are not a pair and have not been called out individually for attending live theater performances by our friends and and other loved ones. (laughs) As I immediately peek out the mic. Okay, great. Well. There it is, folks. But yeah, I relate to Wirt both in terms of his Elijah Woodness and sort of his characterization, but also in his immense anxiety that makes me furious at him. I'm like, oh God, that is kind of how I am. But maybe (laughs) I'm learning lessons from work too. Interesting. I feel like I'm definitely a Greg. Just like real annoying, but like kind of gets the job done in ways that you don't expect. (laughs) Uh, We'll get there. Let's keep moving to (laughs) episode two, Hard Times at the Huskin Bee which is a very Halloween-y, autumn-y episode. <laughs> this is the episode that starts off with the third member of our trio being added, Beatrice the Talking Bluebird, who is saved from the bush. Oh, couldn't love her more. I I think probably like most of middle America know this actor from unfortunate catching snippets of Two and a Half Men on WGN. But she, I guess, plays the stalker for Charlie Sheen's character. But she's Hmm. terrific. Like, I have just written, oh my god, the bird. I can't believe how much she hates work. I do like that Beatrice feels no compunction to be extra nice to these people. She's not trying to be pleasant. And I think especially female characters are written to be very helpful and Mm -hmm. very comforting. It was great to see her lean into like, I have to help you, but I'm not going to make that something that you feel like you deserve. Especially because we know that she has an ulterior motive for staying with them. So it's an interesting character detail for Beatrice that she still chooses to be so abrasive. And I like to think of that as just like part of her personality. I think I said I was a Greg, but I think I'm actually a Beatrice. (laughs) (laughs) I related to her so hard. And the great thing about Melanie Linsky's performance is that though she is written somewhat abrasively, she also imbues so much charisma and charm into her line delivery. Absolutely. Of course you want more of Beatrice, even when she is giving a pointed one word answer. And it's just really clear from the jump that she kind of likes Greg and just has no time for work whatsoever. And it just made me happy because in a traditional story, our main protagonist, which is Wirt, is supposed to be like the person that you connect with. And here you have a character who's introduced as the third part of the triangle being like, he's not super great, actually. An amazing amount of the story does center on the fact that Wirt is kind of a chore to be around sometimes. (laughs) But he's actually fine. Like, there's nothing actually wrong with him. Like, you know, again, I guess we're going to give away the story here. But like, because all of this is kind of, in a way, happening in Wirt's mind, I think that's like Wirt putting that on Wirt, right? And like, that's his own anxiety telling him that he's like too much and that he like can't be liked. Oh, poor anxious Wirt. I do feel bad for the man. So this is our first interlude into sort of the episodic nature of the show. This is just a side adventure where they meet some 
creepy weirdos in a different town. While there are other less plot-driven episodes that I would cut entirely, I wouldn't leave this one out because I love this town. I love the weird pumpkin skeleton people. I think this is such a mood builder in the best way. Everything about this is so atmospheric. The big scary pumpkin guy and the fact that it all works out okay. It's super great. Again, the voice acting here is so good. Like there's there's so many levels of threat where like it seems kind of creepy and then it seems okay. And then that lady's like, wait, what? And then it seems like it's going to take off again. And it's it's a great episode. Speaking of voice acting and the big angry pumpkin guy, Enoch the Big Pumpkin is voiced by Chris Isaac. I thought you were going to say Shannon Sossaman and I was going to be really excited. (laughs) Can you imagine? No, Chris Isaac, who equally surprising that he shows up, but... We talked in some early episodes about my face blindness. I should also say that I'm not super good with like a lot of popular music. So Chris Isaac is different from the Garth Brooks alternate rock personality, right? That would be Chris Gaines, yes. Chris Isaac is a whole human being and not just a fake identity. Here's what I hate to tell you, Chris Kelly. I think all people named Chris apparently are the same person. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't turn down being Chris Gaines or Chris Isaac instead. They both seem to be doing great for themselves, and one of them's not even a real human being. (laughs) Or Elijah Wood, he's got all that Lord of the Rings money. Oh, I would be a great Elijah Wood stand-in. If I were two inches shorter and had blue eyes, I could just be Elijah Wood. Like, there's not a lot of differentiation between the two of us. All right, well, let's do it old Cinderella style. We'll cut off the bottoms of your feet and get you some contacts. Done and dusted. I like the second part better than the first, not gonna lie. (laughs) Um, To get back to this story, the second episode is also the one that establishes this as kind of a musical this is our first song interlude how did you feel about the music i actually really enjoyed the intro song as well i thought that was really lovely i think greg maybe got one too many songs to play around with but i liked all his little just sort of like interludes i thought those were really cute I really liked all the set piece music a lot. I thought it was strange and some of it was like very Americana, some of it was not. And I just thought it wove the story together really well. It didn't necessarily always move the plot forward, which I think is like where I struggled a little bit here is like sometimes I wanted a little bit more like, let's keep it moving. But overall, I thought all the pieces were beautiful. Some amazing singing talent in this. Yeah, there's a lot of really fun singing here. I think with the exception of, like, the first and last episodes, every episode has one or two, like, bangers in it. Yeah, they're great. And it seems to me like the cast, aside from Wood and Lloyd and John Cleese, are, like, composed of singers. Like, it's got the lady from the Partridge family, and the guy who plays the Beast is not an actor. He's, like, an operatic baritone. I was going to just point out exactly that. And it is interesting because I think of him as an actor only because I only know him from this and I know no opera. But like you do first hear his voice as that wonderful rumbling baritone Mm -hmm. echoing through the woods, which is immensely affecting. It's very James Earl Jones adjacent. You just hear that like timber and like fullness and it's so pretty. Speaking of songs... The boys escape 
the pumpkin people, they were never in any real danger. Don't worry. What? I need to say one more thing about the pumpkin people just before we move on. I love more than anything else that the Chamber of Commerce of the town is the official adjudicating body of like who lives and dies in this town. I laughed absolutely out loud. There's a lot of weird stuff like that. The sense of humor here is very specific. I never begrudge when I show people this and it just doesn't land because I'm like, oh, I get it. This is a real weird thing. But it is so specifically pointed at me. I laugh at this every time I watch it. I think this might be one of the very first movies that like has the full Venn diagram over both our senses of humor that allows us to sit in the center of the Venn diagram and like be besties. Yeah, I had a feeling, but I was also prepared that it might be just slightly off center and totally miss the mark. So I'm glad that you're uh, on board. Aimed at my heart. Great. So let's hit episode three, School Town Follies. This is not a plot driven episode, but it has enough full randomness that I am really on board. It's also one of the most musical episodes. I think we get three songs in here. (laughs) That lady's starting at A, and you know she's going to sing the entire alphabet about Jim, and the show just cutting away and then, like, coming back when she's on Y. Loved it. Thought it was so funny. The portrait of Jim above the piano also. Absolute A-class shit. I didn't look up who voices the school teacher, but goddammit, she should have won an award, too. She's fucking nailing it. I'm actually kind of sad that she and Greg don't get more interaction, because she and Greg are on the same level of just being out of their minds. (laughs) Absolutely. I wasn't sure for a little while if Wirt was like trying to prove a point to Beatrice or if like the teacher actually had some power over him. It's kind of a minor point for what is a ridiculous episode where a bunch of animals in clothing eventually go look for two old cats. (laughs) Only to find one that's too old. The game called Two Old Cats that is about finding the number two old cats, but then finding a cat that is T-O-O old sends me away, especially paired with the animation of the saddest looking cat in creation. That is actually when I wrote the note about did they get kids in like a focus group to toss out ideas? Because like, if there is genius here, like it's there is like an adult being able to reach into their brain and pull out two old cats. An interesting thing that you may or may not have heard is that at the end of the series, when Greg and Wirt go to a party, in the background, two of the kids are talking about party games they could play. And one of them was like, well, you could play Two Old Cat. Shut up, I didn't hear that. (laughs) So Two Old Cat gets called back later as a thing that they might play at the party at the end. Love it. Even as sometimes the story meanders... The specificity of the writing is, like, very on point. I think that's actually especially true in Schooltown Follies. I think this episode, again, doesn't forward the Greg and Wirt plot at all, but the plot in 10 minutes that they get through in terms mm-hmm. of the schoolteacher and the gorilla and the schoolteacher's father and Jimmy being away and all of that wrapping up in a neat little bow, this is the best encapsulation of how a story can be told quickly and still have a lot going on. And you could show it to anyone. You don't even need to have, like, the overarching plot. It's just a weird tight 10, and it's good fun. I love the reveal at the end that the father 
he has some line about we were trying to teach animals to read and write and he says it like it's the most logical thing in the world and you're like oh they're not talking animals like some of the other animals are we're really just trying to teach woodland creatures school subjects it's so wonderful they're a family with a dream all the animals are even animated so well and they each have their own personalities, right? Mm-hmm. I felt really bad for each animal when their instrument was taken away. Like, I felt <laughs> genuinely terrible. Yeah, I think in the same way that the second episode sets up the spooky aspect of what we're about to see, the third episode is like, also, this is a kooky musical. And, like, you're just sort of prepared for what is coming next. Yeah, I think that's right. And then we get to episode four, where we have to get back to the plot. Songs of the Dark Lantern is where our woodsman comes back, and we get a creepy tavern in the middle of nowhere with some side characters who may or may not matter. But there's more discussion of the beast, what the woodsman is about. You get some weird misdirects about whether the woodsman is the beast. This is where, like, the A plot comes back into the fore. Yes, though it is derailed almost entirely, for me at least, by the amazing song that is just like, here's how much capitalism we'll get to do when you get married, young man. (laughs) Oh my god, that (laughs) wonderful, shaky-voiced old man. Oh my god, bless him. What I love about this episode is that even though... The tavern is a bastion of silliness. It also does connect to sort of this underlying idea that work is maybe purposeless or feeling purposeless. Like, I think everyone questioning, what do you do? What are you about? Really points to his insecurities in a way that we haven't necessarily explored prior to this in the plot. Yeah, we've seen Beatrice critique him for being easily led What's nice about the show also is that it kind of flips between Wirt and Greg making forward progress, like so that you see that they really are a team, even as to their minds, they feel kind of separate. But again, if we're seeing this as parts of Wirt's psyche, imparting this upon him, like you're kind of seeing that come to the fore again, I think. Yeah, because it is a simple task, ask for directions that he fails miserably at in a lot of ways, but he also learns about himself in terms of having to define a purpose and when he has one put upon him that he doesn't like he does fight back he starts to stand up in a way that like he continues to grow to do by the end yeah i think that's right and meanwhile greg's off bopping about we also have a nice scene of beatrice fighting with the horse (laughs) which I did enjoy. (laughs) You know, I think we're going to wind up giving Beatrice a little bit short shrift because she starts out as a major character. And then I think the show kind of forgets about her for a little while, which is a disappointment. And I think it kind of forgets about her at the end, but we'll talk about that later. But you do see that these three people kind of need each other to like actually get the wheels on the wagon. Yeah. Beatrice has a really interesting arc because she gloms onto them really early, but her major purpose for doing so is revealed very late. And Mm -hmm. so she does get sidelined a little bit in that she's fun comic relief, but what she's doing other than sort of vaguely cajoling them to move forward isn't apparent until like the seventh or eighth episode. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But they do ultimately gallop off on the wonderful not yet speaking horse to confront the woodsman who pops back up and who they mistake for the beast himself. How'd you feel about the woodsman in this moment? 
I wasn't as misdirected as I think the show would have liked me to have been. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't as surprised, maybe as it sounds like you might have been when you first watched it. God, I actually don't remember what my first reaction to any of this was other than loving every last goddamn frame of it. Speaking of loose plot points, I think the next episode is the one that I would absolutely cut. I'd have cut it. Which is Mad Love. This is when we inexplicably find ourselves in a mansion owned by a character voiced by John Cleese, who, of course, I would never want to excise from anything. But nothing happens here that affects anything. Yeah, it is completely divorced from the plot. The only thing that I think is worth keeping is the opportunity for the horse to say, like, no, I want to steal things. (laughs) (laughs) That's very funny, but it wasn't 10 minutes of content. This is the one that always loses me, too. Like, our two added characters here are John Cleese and B.B. Newworth. Oh, is that B.B. Newworth? Okay, I couldn't figure out who she played. Love them both to death. We have two A-plus talents coming in to guest for us, but goddamn were they wasted on a plot that doesn't do anything. It feels like they got them interested and then had to write around it. Yeah, this is the episode where Beatrice casually reveals that she used to be human, which is important for the plot. But other than that, which could have been revealed literally anywhere, even the whole point of this was for them to get two pennies, which Greg throws away at the end. I was actually kind of irritated. That was the only time that I was like, Greg, get it together. Yeah, it's not a particularly well-motivated moment. It feels like he did it entirely for the sake of them writing a joke about it. And I get it that he's like an impulsive character, but it didn't seem to track with how and who he is. Especially because if the joke is that in the next episode, Lullaby and Frogland, we can't get on the ferry without the fair, we don't need this episode where they try and fail to get a fair to the ferry. Like, we could have jumped at least directly to that. Yeah, oh my god, a really good point. Let's just move right along to Lullaby and Frogland, which has our heroes on a riverboat to Adelaide's house, surrounded exclusively by frogs. It's a weird one. I want you to know I have no notes for this episode at all. (laughs) That's how I felt about it. In fairness, the only one that I have for the Mad Love Endicott episode is I was like, This one is kind of slow. This is the middle section where it really lost me. I was just kind of like, okay, like, the frog stuff was cute. There were a couple of reoccurring jokes. The thing with the bassoon was cute. I mean, I'm never mad about, like, three kids in a trench coat joke, but there wasn't a lot of there there. I did like the reveal that their frog has a beautiful singing voice. Loved it. This is also where Beatrice starts to get kind of squirrely about her intentions. I mean, it's not for nothing that I think the two episodes that we're struggling with the most are the two that are most centered around Beatrice and her motivations. There are a lot of women in the show, but it is highly male driven. Like almost all the major singers are male, like almost all the major characters are male. I just don't think the writer was as tapped into this character who is female as much as he was for the others. Yeah, it is telling that her reveals don't come in other aspects of the plot. Though, this episode does end with them reaching Adelaide's house, which does have sort of big plot moments in that it is revealed that 
Beatrice was initially trying to trap these children, decides against it. It's too late because they show up anyway. Adelaide tries to grab them. Adelaide is killed. They run off. A lot happens in the last, like, one minute of this episode. We spend, like, eight minutes on the frog boat, but the very real stakes and fear of what's going to happen at Adelaide's is so short. Like, Beatrice is just like, well, gonna open a window. Oh, you died. I am disappointed every time that Adelaide isn't given time to really develop. A, this is another John Cleese character. We could have John Cleese as Adelaide for a lot longer. And B, we've spent several episodes talking about going to Adelaide's. We wrote a song about it. Yes! Yeah, we've been talking about Adelaide for like five episodes. We didn't talk about Endicott at all, but I think that's just another... I don't want to accuse this person of bias or whatever, but like, I just think he felt much more comfortable and being funny with male characters. I'll say that. Like, and so aside from Beatrice, there aren't really any other like women characters who get to be like real edgy. And I just, they spent so much time building Adelaide up and then was kind of like, oh, woof, and we're done. I mean, two of the major female characters are not even played by women. Another good point. (laughs) Just a thing to throw out there. I wonder what that's hinting at, but go on. I think we've said everything that we can say about that. So Adelaide dies, they escape, and we get to episode seven, The Ringing of the Bell. This was a good one. This one was legitimately scary. So I will now reveal Shannon Sossaman plays our wonderful possessed Lorna. You know what? Good for you, Shannon. Love you. Love your hedgehog hair. Love you as a demon. (laughs) Get it. (laughs) It is a wonderful performance because Lorna is so soft-spoken and tentative. I actually am impressed with the vocal performance of how meek and tame she appears. I think Shannon Sossaman is instrumental to the misdirect around Lorna. Yeah, 100%. The vocal performance on Lorna is incredible. She is one of the two female vocal performances that I was talking about that like actually really matter. This one, again, has a real Miyazaki vibe, specifically, like, a spirited away vibe. Like, there's kind of that, like, unsettling, uncanny valley stuff that happens in Spirited Away. Yeah, Andy Whispers, as voiced by Tim Curry and as animated by just geniuses, is a wonderful character. I love everything about her. Did not know it was Tim Curry. Love it. Is this the first time that Tim Curry has come up on this podcast? Probably. I believe so. Well, just a quick shout out of adoration towards Tim Curry and his body of work. I feel practically obligated to see everything that he does. I might draw the line at that, like, demon movie or whatever. That one felt a little over the line. You haven't seen Legend? No. (sighs) Fucking put it on the list. This might be a good time to mention... (laughs) that you guys need to tell your friends about this show if you wanted to keep going because we have done a bad job of choosing movies and while we respect how many of you refuse to watch Grease and a couple of other titles <laughs> we do need a certain critical mass in order to keep putting in the work of editing this program just put it out there say something nice to a friend about us yeah it's just like hey you know I've been listening to that show replaying favorites these two idiots they're funny every once in a while Speaking of funny every once in a while, this is, I think, one of Greg's funniest episodes. I think this is where Greg, again, shows through as being entirely too 
optimistic in the face of real danger. You gotta let that frog go. The frog causes a lot of problems here. Again, misdirects. We think Auntie Whispers is going to kill them. It turns out it's Lorna. But regardless, someone in this cottage is going to murder you, and he's just oblivious. I'm also just thinking about how deep the misdirect is. Auntie Whispers goes out all day and comes home and is like, Did you collect any children that you're going to be eating later? Tell me the truth. (laughs) Auntie Whispers is very careful to use the passive voice all the time. She says, will anyone be devoured? She doesn't ask who's doing the devouring. It's a very gentle questioning. I'll put it that way. I, as a parental figure, might be more direct. It does seem like if you know that your ward is capable of full murder, you might not be so permissive. I do take issue with the fact that Auntie Whispers has been guarding Lorna for Christ knows how long, but it takes Wirt all of 30 panicked seconds to realize that he could banish the spirit with the bell. Yeah, I might have rewritten that a little bit to have made it something about the connection that they made cleaning together or the fact that she didn't feel like she had to serve Wirt or something like it needed to be something about the, that the relationship between Auntie Whispers and Lorna was standing in the way. Yeah, it otherwise just feels like Auntie Whispers doesn't have a real grasp on what's available to her, or maybe she just really likes having someone clean the house. She seems a little oblivious because she's like, hey, by the way, and watch out for my sister. Girl, she's dead. Oh, yeah, we really don't ever talk about that. <laughs> no, she drops that one and we leave it just right there. Listen, Auntie Whispers is going to learn some bad things later on. We're not going to get there. We are going to move right on to episode eight, Babes in the Wood. I feel like we are now fully back on like the A plot where we're establishing that Wirt is losing hope and there are consequences for feeling powerless. Counterpoint, isn't this the one where we spend most of the time in the sky? There is that. So this is also a dream (laughs) sequence for Greg. What's happening on the ground is important. What's happening in the sky is full nonsense. This was the closest it came to losing me. I was like on board. I was like into Wirt's journey. It seemed like things were coming to a head. And then we just went off on kind of a like literal dream sequence. And because even the North Wind didn't matter, right? Like, did that do anything? No, it's true that there's a fair amount of padding here. Counterpoint, this episode does have my favorite joke in the entire series, which is after the three committees greet Greg, he asks, is there anyone else? And they just cut to a shot of an angry looking dog for like (laughs) five seconds and zoom in. And he says, well, that's enough. (laughs) I also do have a note about that, yes. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best jokes that I've ever seen. You know, we've talked a little bit about how maybe this creator has had a little bit of trouble writing for like adult women. I think the counterpoint to that is that he seems at his best when writing for a small boy. I do think the dream sequence gives Greg a chance to just play. And I do like being in Greg's brain a little bit. Again, I think if this is like a shared dream that these two brothers are having, you're seeing different parts of them like taking control at various times. And yes, this is definitely like a Greg time. 
And I do like that Greg recognizes in this moment that he does have to do a little more than just faff about. I usually view this as Wirt's journey to learning what he can do, but I think there is a part of this that is Greg's journey to being a little more intentional, even as he is still a silly boy. Yeah, Wirt is entering high school, and so he's dealing with, like, becoming a full adult person, right? And all the anxiety and stress that that brings. And then Greg is sort of transitioning out from being, like, a little one to being, like, you know, kind of that mode that you hit when you're, like, 7 to 10, right? Where you're, like, almost ready to take those next steps. I do think they do a good job of kind of embodying what that feels like to be a kid of that age. Yeah, I love that last moment in this episode where Greg comes back and realizes that Wirt is in trouble. Mm -hmm. And he makes a really active choice to do something really scary, which is to wander off and find the beast. And what's funny about it is that, like, usually in these kinds of stories, you see the elder sibling, like, always taking the body blows for the little sibling, right? And then eventually the little sibling steps up. But we haven't seen Wirt really, like, fix things before. I mean, I guess he, I, I guess we've seen a little bit. He fixed Lorna, but, like, it's kind of been shared between them. And I feel like Greg really takes the lift on himself in this moment. And I also like that he knows that if he needs saving, Wirt will save him. He just hasn't been in dire danger yet. Right. And it's also what allows the show to move into the end game of, like, okay, let's actually put these kids in real peril. We've put down one big bad, and now we're going to go deal with, like, the big, big bad. Yeah, and Wirt runs off and almost drowns at the end of this episode. Yeah. And we're left with a real cliffhanger of what's going to happen, which is interrupted by episode nine, Into the Unknown, which takes us on a flashback before the rest of this all happens. It was a really smart move and was, like, the energy boost the show needed at this point. I was feeling a little drained from, like, kind of the surrealist bits. I loved this episode. I thought it was so great. It is such a wonderful moment when we jump to a bedroom and Wirt is just a normal teenager and everything that you've assumed about the story is thrown out the window. Completely. So we begin the story on Halloween. We have referenced prior that Wirt is interested in Sarah. We now know that he made a mixtape for Sarah, and she is a girl at his school that he has a giant crush on. When he said that that mixtape was a mixture of poetry and clarinet, I almost tore my skin off and went to the clouds. Because because I know that freshman in high school and it's just the worst (laughs) it's really sad this is a great moment of seeing all of Wirt's foibles in like their actual context all the shit that we've seen of him digging up skeletons or other weird fantasy moments all makes sense. Yeah, and you get to see why Wirt is so annoyed at Greg all the time, because Greg has seemed, if annoying, kind of useful in the other world. And he's useful here too, but just like, not in the way that you want when you are actually in the world and you're in high school. Like, it is a lot more palatable when you're in an adventure situation than when you're in a high school situation. Poor Wirt is more stressed here than in any of the situations where his actual life is on the line in the woods. 
Completely. But again, I think that that is like the overarching thing is that like, he's just had this incredibly stressful experience. But of course, because he's a teenager, it's not actually super bad. Like those girls kind of suck, but like that girl really likes him. I also love that we have established earlier that his arch nemesis is Jason Funderburker. And then (laughs) when we meet him, that guy is a fucking dud. What's so funny is, again, another misdirect, which is like the name Jason Funderburger suggests exactly that guy. But then he gets built up so much as like the end all be all that you think he's that big jock who comes to check on her. And then he is exactly that guy yet again. Oh, I love all of the moments where Sarah does not give a fuck about Jason. That actor is another one doing great work of just working in the like, okay, like she doesn't care. She wants him to go away. (laughs) And some of what's great about being an adult, and I know that we're all scared of the teens because they'll fuck us up with their TikToks and also they're just like scary on the train. (laughs) But it's also that like, The things that teens are scared of and that they think matter absolutely don't matter. Like, Bert is in. Sarah likes him. He's won. Like, all he has to do is go to that graveyard and, like, it's gonna work out. But, like, your teen brain says to you that you are trash all the time. (laughs) And it's so... Don't get me wrong. I feel like trash a lot of the time, but not as much as I did when I was a teen. Yeah, I think that's what's really impressive about this episode in particular is that The previous eight episodes have been such a weird fantasy, and the writing for the very real characters so works. It's so believable. It's so good. The mean girls, Sarah, they're all really, really good and grounded. I also want to give a special shout out to, I think, Rhonda, the girl in the egg costume, (laughs) who I was concerned because she didn't have her arms out that at some point she'd be knocked over. And then she was knocked over like five minutes later, just as for Rhonda or Rhoda or whatever your name is called. So now we get to episode 10, The Unknown, where Greg must be saved from the beast. I loved Beatrice's mom. I was, however, I'm going to jump a little later in the episode, horrified to learn, however, that Wirt has had the goddamn scissors the whole time. He could have saved, he could have snippety snipped that whole family while he was in the tree. It is a bad reveal for that specific reason. They should have found another way to introduce Beatrice's family that didn't involve Wirt just leaving them, them to over. fuck off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. thanks for saving my life, but you are going to stay birds because I carry a specific grudge. It was a hard look for Wirt, I'm not going to lie. I appreciate that it does give Beatrice the chance to save her family herself, but that's definitely not why he didn't do it. A special shout out to Mama Bluebird, who I think is June Partridge, right? Yeah, Shirley Jones. Yeah, yeah. She just shoves that dirt right in his mouth. Bless her heart. I cannot believe that we got Shirley Jones in this cast and didn't give her a song. Right? She's in the goddamn Music Man. That's what I'm talking about, is that, like, this cast seems primarily people with singing voices like it's very wild is he like connected to like musical theater or something somehow listen someone else google it if you're interested we're (laughs) going to talk about greg being trapped by the beast i do love that greg's optimism stymies the beast and that's a really interesting plot wrinkle that like Mm -hmm. the beast is all about having you lose hope and that is impossible for greg 
He's just such a little pistol that it defies the big bad. And I love those kind of stories. And yet he does still have Wirt save him, which is, we learn, his plan all along. And Wirt does figure out the ultimate defeat of the beast which is that the lantern is the beast's soul and not the daughter that he promised the woodsman it would be what a gutting realization i mean it is nice that the woodsman's daughter winds up being fine apparently but god imagine doing these horrible things to try to keep your family afloat and then realizing that it's actually just been like keeping the horrible thing alive instead like it's actually a really dark grim plot point it is the darkest that the show gets it is a really affecting reveal i wasn't expecting it the first time and it's grim it's also great though that Wirt does that thing where he steps up and you think he's gonna do the thing and make the sacrifice and whatever else and he's like this is dumb And, like, that also, like, meshes so well with, like, the sensibility of the show. I really felt like it, the show, like, got its gear back in for the last two episodes. It's a wonderful tying up of things because, again, by leaving, he also gets to let the woodsman close that arc. It ties up wonderfully. And then we get back to the real world in time for everyone Wirt has ever met to be in the hospital, as you point out. Aside from his own family. Yes. (laughs) It is a little strange that none of his parental figures show up, though two minors were almost drowned. But we get a happy ending that Wirt does get to connect with Sarah and he will play her the tape at his house after they have played some other tapes. He gets to (laughs) delay, hopefully indefinitely, the reveal of what exactly is on that one. I hope that boy has a lot of mixtapes. I will say a really tender moment, I thought, was that the frog, A, was there and was covered in its own little blanket, but B, was on Wirt's bed because they had been through something together. And I thought that that was like a really nice touch from the movie. It is a special thing. I also like that by naming the frog Jason Funderburker, he also helps diffuse the one remaining anxiety that Wirt had. The frog names are truly genius. Like it goes from everything from like George Washington down to Jason Funderburger and it's glorious throughout. I love the frog. I hope he's very happy. Based on the voice actor, it is implied that he is essentially the narrator since yeah. he sings the opening and closing songs. And speaking of the closing song, we do get, even though all of these people might not have been real, we get a montage of everyone that we've met getting a happy ending. Yeah, it was really nice to see the woodsman's daughter be there. I think what's nice is that the film or miniseries, whatever, keep up everybody, um, that the, <laughs> <laughs> the show we're watching forestalled the obvious Wirt-Beatrice pairing. I like that they gave him Sarah to go back to and didn't try to make it happen with Beatrice. I like that everyone gets a nice happy ending. You just Mm -hmm. want everything tied up in a bow sometimes. Completely agree. I have a question, though, because the, the frog seems to suggest that the whole thing is lies. I believe that is the last word of his song. I think the miniseries is never really sure 
if everything happened to them for real or not. Because I think so much of it implies that it was a dream sequence, that it was all in Wirt's head. And I guess maybe he would, having found a happy ending for himself, imagine happy ends for all of those characters. But it also seems like if he woke up in the hospital, he would never think back to that hallucination again. So giving happy ends for everyone, to me, implies that they must have existed. So it is a weird... 50 50 that the script does yeah and it made me the littlest bit sad i like the ambiguity of these two worlds kind of existing like one in reality and like one in fairy and like kind of sometimes you cross over i think it remains open to interpretation i just can't imagine that we would have done 10 episodes of it was all a dream i have to believe that the intention was that there's a possibility that it's all real i think so too so with that we have reached the end of our story. Bree, final thoughts on Over the Garden Wall. I really like this. I would very happily watch seven of the episodes again. I think that having seen them once, I would probably skip the three episodes that I talked about not being that into because I think the whole thing would hold together without those. Overall, incredible voice acting, fun animation, and a really great story. Really loved it. Thank you for sharing this with me. I'm so glad you liked it. I, too, will continue to rewatch this once a year, every Halloween. It is a tradition that I hold dear to my heart. So everyone else, watch it at least once, and maybe you'll find yourself revisiting annually as well. But we're not going to watch this again. The next thing we're going to do is watch whatever Bree tells us. So Bree... I'm pretty horrified about what I'm about to do to you. <laughs> oh, God. So... Like you, I am a Freddy cat. However, I have one horror movie that I love more than anything else, and that is 1963's The Haunting. Oh, okay. This will be interesting. I have not seen this. It is a classic. It is based on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. I think you're going to like this one. I'm going to put this out there for everybody right now, which is the reason I like this movie is like, I don't like faces and bodies moving weird and stuff. You will never see a ghost in this movie, but I guarantee you, you are going to be terrified. Oh, thank you for the warning. I will watch it during daylight hours. <laughs> I am excited and scared for what's about to happen. It's a good one. I don't want to say anything more about it. So we're going to watch it for Halloween and we will see you all in two weeks. See you then. Bye. If you don't know what we're talking about, you're not on the right trains.